welcome to podcast number nine. This is the fifth one I will have done during the coronavirus pandemic. And it's been a wonderful outlet. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed doing them. Joe Weber here on The Voice of the Arts. Let's kick things off today with some poetry. and eyes. I saw my friend Ella with the tall cowboy at the store the other day in Shiprock. Later I asked her, who's that guy anyway? Oh, Lucy, she said. I knew what was coming. It's terrible. He lives with me and my money and my car. But just for a while, he's an AIRCA and rodeos a lot, and I still work. This rodeo business is getting to me, you know, and I'm going to leave him because I think all this I'm doing now will pay off better somewhere else. But I just stay with him, and it's hard because he just smiles that way, you know, and then I end up paying entry fees and putting shiny Tony Llamas on layaway again. It's not hard. But he doesn't know when I'll leave him, and I'll drive across the flat desert from Red Valley in blue morning light straight to Shiprock so easily. And anyway, my car is already used to humming a morning song with Gary Stewart complaining again of aching and breaking down and out love affairs. Damn, these Navajo cowboys with raisin eyes and pointed boots are just bad news. But it's so hard to remember that all the time, she said with a little laugh. Wasted days and wasted nights I have left Are you behind? Or you don't belong to me Your heart belongs To someone else Why should I keep loving you When I know that you're not true And why should I call your name You're the blame For making me blue Don't you Remember the day That you Went away And left me I was so lonely Pray for you only My love Why should I keep Loving you When I know That you're not true And why should I Call your name When you're the blame For making me
should I keep loving you When I know that you're not true And why should I call your name When you're the blame For making me blue Freddie Fender, and before that, we heard Lucy Tapahanso, Native American poet, with her poem, Raisin Eyes. We're going to hear some music now and some commentary from the opera, Madame Butterfly. Works of art can often give us a better sense of history than our history books. Giacomo Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly, had its premiere in 1904, a period in which the U.S. was really beginning to flex its muscles as a nation. The Civil War was 40 years behind us, and a transcontinental rail line had connected the East and West Coasts, generating enormous energy for the engine of the U.S. economy. The country was also becoming a naval power to rival Great Britain. The character of B.F. Pinkerton, the young American naval lieutenant stationed in Nagasaki, reflects the confidence of burgeoning American power. In this following duet from Act I that involves Pinkerton and the American consul Sharpless, Pinkerton sings, Everywhere in the world the roving Yankee takes his pleasure and his profit, indifferent to all risks. He drops anchor at random. He interrupts himself, offering Sharpless a glass of whiskey. And then goes on. He drops anchor at random till a sudden squall wrecks the ship, hawsers, rigging, and all. He's not satisfied with life unless he makes his own the flowers of every shore. Sharpless replies, E un facile vangelo. It's an easygoing creed. And shortly after says, An easygoing creed that makes life delightful but saddens the heart. Earlier, Pinkerton has explained to Sharpless that he has bought the home that he's showing him for 999 years with the right every month to cancel the agreement. In this country, he says, houses and contracts are equally elastic. He then goes on to explain to Sharpless that he's taking the same attitude toward his marriage with the 15-year-old geisha named Butterfly.
Sharpless asks Pinkerton what madness has got hold of you. Are you completely infatuated? Pinkerton replies that Butterfly has certainly bewitched him. She's as delicate and fragile as blown glass. In stature and bearing, she resembles some figure on a painted screen. And from her background of glossy lacquer, with a sudden movement, she frees herself like a butterfly. She flutters and settles with such quiet grace that a madness seizes me to pursue her even though I might damage her wings. Sharpless replies, It would be a great sin to strip off those delicate wings and perhaps plunge a trusting heart into despair. Pinkerton dismisses his worry. My dear consul, don't worry. It's usual at your age to take a pessimistic view. There's no great harm done if I want those wings to be spread in love's tender flight. He offers Sharpless another whiskey. Sharpless accepts and toasts Pinkerton's family back home. And Pinkerton replies, and to the day when I shall get married in real earnest to a real American bride. Quanesmania vi prende, sareste addirittura cotto. Non so, non so, dipende dal grado di cottura. Amore o grillo, dir non saprei, certo costei, ma con l'ingenue art invescato, lieve qual tenue vetro soffiato, alla statura, al portamento, sembra figura da paravento, ma dolso lucido fondo di lacca, come consumo. Moto si stacca, cantare falletta solazza e posa, con tal grazietta silenziosa. Se 
been listening to selections from an EMI recording of Madama Butterfly written by Giacomo Puccini, Victoria de Los Angeles in the role of Butterfly, Yussi Beerling as Pinkerton, Mario Sereni as Sharpless, the chorus and orchestra of the Opera Theater of Rome conducted by Gabriele Santini. We're going to take a break from Madame Butterfly. We'll hear a little more of Butterfly later in the show, but right now we're going to hear a reading from an almost forgotten writer named Richard Yates, we'll hear a passage from his novel, Revolutionary Road. Richard Yates was an American novelist and short story writer whose works were completely out of print in the years after his death. Though his reputation has substantially increased posthumously and many of his novels have since been reissued in new editions, his current success can be largely traced to the influence of Stuart Onan's 1999 essay in the Boston Review, The Lost World of Richard Yates, How the Great Writer of the Age of Anxiety Disappeared from Print. Yates' novel, Revolutionary Road, captured the fear of many Americans in the 50s of being ordinary. In Revolutionary Road, Yates dangles in front of a young couple, Frank and April Wheeler, the dream of going to Europe of having exciting friends and exciting experiences, of leaving the suburbs for a more romantic life of adventure. The passage from Revolutionary Road that I'm going to read to you is 
a portrait of a character in the novel named Shep Campbell, a friend and neighbor of the Wheelers who shares their contempt for suburban life in Connecticut. Shepard Sears Campbell loved to shine his shoes. It was a love he had learned in the Army. He was a veteran of three campaigns with a famous airborne division. And even now, those civilian cordovans were far less rewarding than the heavy jump boots of the old days. The acrid smell and crouching vigor of the job held rich associations of esprit de corps. He sang a kind of old-time big band swing while he did it alternating the husky lyrics with a squint-eyed, loose-lipped sound, but a ba-ba-ba to simulate the brass section. And now and then he would pause to take a swig from the can of beer that stood on the floor beside him. Then he would stretch his back, scratch the yellowed armpits of his T-shirt, and permit himself a long and satisfying belch. "'What time the wheeler's coming, doll?' he asked his wife, who was studying herself sensibly in the mirror of her flounced dressing table. "'8.30, sweetie.' "'Geez,' he said, "'if I want to get a shower, I better haul ass.' Squinting, he flexed the toes of his right shoe to test its gleam before he crouched again, snapped his rag, and went to work on the left one. The stolid, peasant's look that glazed his face as he worked was only an occasional expression with Shep Campbell nowadays. He saved it for his shoe-shining mood or his tire-changing mood, but it held the vestige of a force that had once laid claim to the whole of his heart. For years, boy and man, he had yearned above all to be insensitive and ill-bred, to hold his own among the sullen boys and men whose real or imagined jeers had haunted his childhood, to deny by an effort of will what for a long time had been the most shameful facts of his life, that he'd been raised in a succession of brownstone and penthouse apartments in the vicinity of Sutton Place, schooled by private tutors, and allowed to play with other children only under the smiling eye of his English nanny or his French mamzelle, and that his wealthy divorced mother had insisted until he was 11 years old on dressing him every Sunday in adorable tartan kilts that came from Bergdorf Goodman. She would have made a goddamn lollipop out of me, he sometimes ranted, even now to the few friends with whom he could bring himself to talk about his mother. But in calmer, wiser moments, he had long since found the compassion to forgive her. Nobody's parents were perfect, and besides, whatever her intentions might have been, he knew she'd never really had a chance. From earliest adolescence, from the time his child's physique began to corset into the slope-shouldered build of a wrestler, if not before, he had been lost forever to her fluttering grasp. Anything in the world that could even faintly be connected with what his mother called cultivated or nice was anathema to Shep Campbell in those formative years, and everything she called vulgar was his heart's desire. At his small and expensive prep school, he found it easy to become the ill-dressed, hell-raising lout of the student body, feared and admired and vaguely pitied on the assumption that he was one of the charity boys. After being expelled in his senior year, he moved straight to his mother's horror into the swarm of a Manhattan high school and into minor scrapes with the police until the arrival of his 18th birthday sent him whooping and hollering into the paratroops, resolved to acquit himself not only with conspicuous bravery, but with that other attribute so highly prized by soldiers, the quality of being a tough son of a bitch. He made the grade on both counts, and the war seemed only to deepen the urgency of his quest. 
Afterwards, it seemed entirely logical for him to shrug off all his mother's tearful arguments for Princeton or Williams and go slouching away instead to a third-rate institute of technology in the Middle West. On the GI Bill, he had always explained, as if any possibility of private means would have made him a feat. There, dozing through his classes in a leather jacket or lurching at night in the spit-and-sawdust company of other campus toughs, growling his beer-bloated disdain for the very idea of liberal arts, he learned the unquestionably masculine, unquestionably middle-class trade of mechanical engineering. It was there, too, that he found his wife, a small, soft, worshipful clerk in the bursar's office, and fathered the first of his sons. And it wasn't until several years later that the great reaction set in. What happened then, he was later to call it, the time I sort of went crazy, was that he woke up to find himself employed in a hydraulic machinery plant a hundred miles from Phoenix, Arizona, and living in one of 400 close-set identical houses in the desert, a sun-baked box of a house with four framed mountain scenes from the dime store on its walls, and five brown engineering manuals in the whole naked width of its bookshelves a box that rang every night to the boom of television or the shrill noise of neighbors dropping in for canasta. Shepard Sears Campbell had to admit he felt forlorn among these young men with blunt, prematurely settled faces and these girls who shrieked in paralyzing laughter over bathroom jokes. Harry, Harry, tell the one about the man got caught in the ladies' john or folded their lips in respectful silence while their husbands argued automobiles. Now, you take the Chevy, far as I'm concerned, you can have any Chevy ever built, bar none. And he rapidly began to see himself as an imposter and a fool. All at once, it seemed that the high adventure of pretending to be something he was not had led him into a way of life he didn't want and couldn't stand, that in defying his mother he had turned his back on his birthright. Bright visions came to haunt him of a world that could and should have been his, a world of intellect and sensibility that now lay forever mixed in his mind with the East. In the East, he then believed, the man went to college not for vocational training, but in disciplined search for wisdom and beauty. And nobody over the age of 12 believed that those words were for sissies. In the East, wearing rumpled tweeds and flannels, he could have strolled for hours among the ancient elms and clock towers, talking with his friends, and his friends would have been the cream of their generation. The girls of the East were marvelously slim and graceful. They moved with the authority of places like Bennington and Holyoke. They spoke intelligently in low, subtle voices, and they never giggled. On sharp winter evenings, you could meet them for cocktails at the Biltmore and take them to the theater, and afterwards, warmed with brandy, they would come with you for a drive to a snowbound New England inn, where they'd slip happily into bed with you under an eiderdown quilt. In the East, when college was over, you could put off going seriously to work until you'd spent a few years in a book-lined bachelor flat with intervals of European travel. And when you found your true vocation at last, it was through a process of informed and unhurried selection. Just as when you married at last, it was to solemnize the last and best of your many long, sophisticated affairs. You've been listening to selections from the novel Revolutionary Road, written by Richard Yates and published in 1961.
Benny Goodman and his orchestra with Never Should Have Told You. And they were fairly contemptuous back then of their vocalists. They called them canaries. And unfortunately, I don't know who the vocalist is. It could have been one of several, Helen Ward or Helen Forrest, but I don't know. I can't identify the vocalist. Before that, we heard a reading by yours truly from the novel Revolutionary Road written by Richard Yates. Next, we'll return to more music and narrative from the opera Madame Butterfly. Giacomo Puccini saw David Belasco's production of the play Madame Butterfly in London in 1900 and decided to base an opera on it. The opera debuted in 1904. Madame Butterfly, the central character, also known as Chocho San, marries an American naval officer named B.F. Pinkerton, who is stationed in Japan. Shortly after she conceives his child, Pinkerton is recalled to the United States where he marries an American girl. She is abandoned by her relatives for converting to Christianity in order to please Pinkerton. Lonely and isolated with her servant Suzuki and child, she awaits Pinkerton's return. In the poignant aria Un Bellive Dremo, she sings, One fine, clear day we shall see a thin trail of smoke arising on the distant horizon far out to sea. And then the ship appears, then the white ship enters into the harbor and thunders out its greeting. You see, he has come. I'll not go down to meet him, not I. I shall stay on the hillside and wait, and wait for a long time, and I'll not grow weary of the long wait. Emerging from the city crowds, a man is coming, a tiny speck starts to climb the hill. Who is he? Who? And when he arrives, what will he say? What will he say? He will call Butterfly from the distance. I, without answering, will remain hidden, a little to tease him, and a little so as not to die at our first meeting. And then, rather worried, he will call, he will call, my little one, my tiny wife, Perfume Verbena, the names he gave me when he came last. All this will happen, I promise you. And it does happen later in the opera. Pinkerton returns, but he returns with his American wife, and Madame Butterfly stabs herself with a knife inscribed with the words, He dies with honor who cannot stay alive with honor.
Well, that's going to wrap up podcast number nine. Folks, thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long here at The Voice of the Arts. Thank you.